Welcome to the Resources for Integrated Care webinar, Disability Competent Care Conversations on Access with ADANN. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live on July 31st, 2019. This podcast features a conversation in collaboration with the Americans with Disability Act National Network, or ADANN, which provided a platform for questions to be answered on how healthcare organizations and facilities can best improve accessibility for participants living with disabilities to best meet their care needs. This conversation is facilitated by Jennifer Koo of the Lewin Group and features speakers Michael Richardson, the director of the Northwest ADA Center, and Pam Williamson, the assistant project director of the Southeast ADA Center. This conversation focuses on healthcare facility accessibility, including physical and communication barriers that may impede participants living with disabilities from receiving care. Thank you very much. This is uh, Michael Richardson. I'm the director of the Northwest ADA Center out here in the Pacific Northwest. And like Pam, uh, both of us are uh, involved in a, uh, an, an access to healthcare committee uh, within the ADA National Network. So we are addressing uh, healthcare access issues and helping individuals like yourselves understand uh, rights and responsibilities under the ADA when it comes to accessible healthcare. Go ahead, Pam. Thank you, Michael. Uh, my name is Pam Williamson. I'm the Assistant Director of the Southeast ADA Center located in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm very pleased to be here with you today. And take us to the next slide, please. I will tell you a little bit more about the ADA National Network. Next slide, please. Hey, why don't you go ahead? I think we might be having some technical difficulties, okay. but we'll work no on that problem. while you give the inspection. No problem. I think so, it's up now. Okay. All right. The ADA National Network uh, is a group of 10 centers and one knowledge translation center that provides information, guidance, and training on how to implement the Americans with Disabilities Act. We are funded by the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research, also known as NIDLR. And we are not an enforcement agency. We are truly here to help and to be able to assist folks such as yourself to be able to implement the law effectively. Great. Thank you, Pam and Michael. Uh, let's go ahead and get the question and answer session started. Um, we did receive several pre-submitted questions from our audience, so we'll start with those questions, but we do encourage everyone to submit any additional questions you might have via the Q&A feature on the platform. Um, we do only have 30 minutes uh, for today's conversation, so if we aren't able to get to your question, we'll work with Michael and Pam to develop answers and to get them posted on the RIC website. Um, so let's go ahead and get started uh, with our first question for ADA National Network. What are some common ADA-related accessibility issues that present barriers to healthcare for people with disabilities? This is Michael. This is a very good question. Um, and to summarize, uh, in our opinion, there are four areas of, of uh, access issues that we like to focus on, one being communication, the second being the physical accessibility of a location. Uh, attitudinal uh, barriers can be an issue as well, as well as policies and procedures that may inadvertently uh, discriminate against people with disabilities. Now, for communication, the ADA requires the provision of auxiliary aids and services 
to ensure effective communication for those who have disabilities in which communication is impacted, such as hearing, vision, speech, and cognitive intellectual disabilities. Some healthcare providers are often unaware of the requirements or believe that they have effective alternatives, which may lead to miscommunication, which can impact the quality of care or even present safety issues. This also includes electronic communications, such as inaccessible websites, telehealth systems, etc. When we talk about physical accessibility, Sometimes there's often a lack of accessible weighing scales, exam tables and chairs, or even accessible diagnostic equipment. Some people with disabilities are often denied full access to care if there are no processes to transfer from a wheelchair to a table, for example. Some smaller clinics may have access issues surrounding parking, the path of travel, the entryway, and access to the common areas, such as the lobbies, restrooms, and exam rooms. And then we talk about some attitudinal barriers that can present, uh, 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 prevent access. Access to care may be substandard because of assumptions that are often made about people with disabilities. For example, women not getting referrals for, reprodu for reproductive health care because it could be assumed that they are not sexually active. And then uh, the final one is uh, surrounding policies, procedures. The ADA calls for the reasonable, reasonable modification of policies and procedures where necessary to allow for access. And a good example of that can be uh, a policy, for example, if a small doctor's office has a policy that uh, each patient care visit is limited to 15 minutes, and you have an individual with a disability that requires a longer time to communicate with, then they need to modify that policy, or they should modify that policy to allow for extra time to conduct that visit without, that, without adding additional charges as well. Next slide. All right. Thank you, Michael. Uh, so our next question that we received, a uh, pre-submitted question is, could you speak to the use and cost of American Sign Language apps for personal computers and cell phones in general and in healthcare settings? Are they effective at improving access? This is Pam, and that's an excellent question. I really want to take this back to a larger context because it's remember it's um, important to remember that the use of apps and cell phones and other things used to communicate with individuals who are deaf or hard of hearing are actually part of the larger requirements of effective communication under the ADA. And the ADA requires that public entities and that state and local governments or private businesses, which would be businesses and nonprofit organizations that serve the public, provide auxiliary aids and services to make sure that people with disabilities um, are able to understand what is said or written and communicate effectively. Now, the goal of effective communication is to always make sure that people with disabilities can understand what's being said and it's as effective as communication with other people. Now, auxiliary aids and services might very well include apps, such as American Sign Language apps or captioning apps. However, it's really going to depend on the method of communication that's used by the individual on a regular basis and the nature and length and difficulty of the communication taking place. For example, uh, you know, just doing a quick uh, blood pressure check in office, that might be acceptable. However, if it's a more difficult conversation around surgery or a cancer diagnosis, that app may not be workable. 
And then the other thing is the complexity of what's being communicated. You know, is it a simple conversation or is it that more detailed conversation? Now, I want to say I personally used a couple of captioning apps because I do have an auditory processing disorder. I've even paid as much as $10 for an app that did not work very well, yet I have a colleague who is hard of hearing who has a free app on her phone uh, that she uses, and it works beautifully, yet we have two different operating systems. So not all apps are created equal, and we need to keep that in mind. The other thing is that a person needs to be comfortable with using that method of communication. So it's very important to remember that you want to make sure a person is using uh, something that works for him or her and is able to communicate. And if it's a state or local government agency, you know, the service, uh, the auxiliary aid or service really must be, uh, must uh have the person who is using the uh, with the disability give primary consideration to their um, method of communication first, and then a private business really should still ask the person what their preference is, but they can choose the method as long as it's effective. The bottom line is that we want to make sure that any auxiliary aid or service that is chosen is going to be effective and really promote that communication between the patient and the and the medical provider. Great. Thank you, Pam. All right. Our next question, how can telephonic case management or case management services conducted over the telephone by health plan staff best serve participants with disabilities? This is Michael. That's a, another good question. Um, and this can be answered from the standpoint of effective communication. So unless the customer or patient has knowledge and resources to use assistive technology, such as the telephone relay services, then the care team will need to think about alternative methods of getting information across. Ideally, this would have been established beforehand with an assessment of specific accommodation needs and having these needs noted in the consumer's record. This is important uh, as sometimes there are changes in, in uh, staffing and um, some unexpected changes in the team's makeup. And so as new folks become involved in the care of the consumer, it's important that information is readily available to understand and ensure that their accommodation needs are met. As far as some ideas and, and examples, again, it all depends on the individual and their needs. But in telephonic case management, some areas to think about would include um, other opportunities to uh, provide information afterwards in uh, written format, either by email or, or snail mail, um, other opportunities to meet in person as part of a team where necessary to ensure effective communication. So this is more sort of a, a think outside the box type of situation. And it, again, depends on the customer and the logistics and the uh, communication needs as well. Next slide. Great. Thank you, Michael. All right. So our um, next question that we received is around substance use disorder programs. So there is a growing need for access to health care with increased attention to opioid use disorders. What are the ADA requirements for substance use disorder programs? Are there requirements to provide personal care? Jennifer, this is a quite a complex question, so I'm going to try to put the answer into as short a time frame as possible. But 
we need to look at opioid use disorders and substance use disorder programs, again, in the bigger context, because the opioid crisis is overwhelming and individuals are seeking treatment. And what we've got to look at this from two perspectives. One is from the perspective of the person who uh, may be the opioid user. And then the other is the person uh, who may have an opioid use disorder and then have a co-occurring disability, such as a mobility disability, a hearing or vision disability, or psychiatric disability. Now, the U.S. Department of Justice actually um, has said that opioid use disorders may be considered a disability under the ADA because it could potentially substantially limit one or more major life activities. But it's important to note that someone who's currently engaged in the illegal use of drugs is not particularly covered under the ADA. However, um, a person... So might be qualified for a program and may have one of those co-occurring disabilities. And so that they still need to meet the essential eligibility requirements for a program. So for example, you may have a person who has opioid use disorder and they want to participate in a state run program uh, for substance abuse disorders, yet that program requires that they not have a criminal background uh, above and beyond the opioid use disorder. And so, but this person may have be an opioid user and have the criminal background. Therefore, they're no longer qualified because they do have a criminal background. It may also be that a person has a co another co-occurring disability uh, where, as we mentioned earlier, they may have a disability that affects mobility, hearing, seeing, um, may have HIV or AIDS or some other type of uh, disability. And so there's maybe multiple disability-related issues going on, and this means a person uh, might need to have access to effective communication. They may need, they may need facility access. And they in all of those kinds of things that would allow them to be able to participate as a person with a disability in the substance use disorder program. So the entire substance use disorder program needs to be looked at uh, for accessibility and, and looking at all of those things that we've mentioned. And it's also important to note that um, they need to be accessible under the ADA regardless, and also, too, is that the person needs to be able to benefit from the program. So regarding the personal care aspect is a little bit trickier because it depends on the program itself. If the program is designed so that a person may already receive personal care services such as bathing, shaving, assistance with dressing for any patient, then the person with a disability may also be uh, eligible for those services. However, if a patient is expected to um, act independently, then the, the facility may be required to have uh, a modification of a policy or procedure allowing that individual to bring in his or her own caregiver or to explore other options for personal care could be provided. So 
The facility is not required to provide personal devices such as a wheelchair, hearing aids, or anything of that nature unless it's something that is done on a regular basis with all um, participants. All right, thank you, Pam. You did a really nice, no, there was a lot of information there. You did a nice job of um, uh, being succinct, so we appreciate it. Um, next up, um, what are the ADA requirements for home health agencies? Are agencies required to provide equipment and aids to persons with disabilities to facilitate communication, or are they required to provide only information on how to obtain equipment and aids? This is a good question. This is Michael. Uh, this all depends on the definition of, of equipment and, and aids and how we look at it. If it's related to ensuring effective communication between a caregiver and a customer, such as a deaf customer, during appointments, then the agency needs to provide, again, auxiliary aids and services, such as a qualified sign language interpreter or other uh, modes of uh, services to or supports to enhance and effective communication. If we are talking about assistive technology devices for customers to obtain and use for daily living, then those are personal devices and are not required to be provided by the agency, although it wouldn't help to provide them with resources to where they can obtain such devices, such as augmentative, augmentative communication devices for individuals with speech impairments. Next slide. Great, thank you, Michael. Um, so our next question comes from a health plan. What are some common access barriers associated with health plans, and what can health plans do to more effectively reduce these barriers? Very good question. This is Michael again. Um, I think when we're looking at health plans, I think the main area we're looking at is how information is exchanged and conveyed. Uh, quite often, people with disabilities um, ask, do they have access to information uh, such as the websites? Are the websites accessible? Uh, sometimes you can have a, a really nice-looking website, but it may not be accessible to somebody with a screen reader um, who needs to have uh, information read aloud to them. Um, are there other uh, alternative formats to print materials that could be available? Uh, sometimes information is sent by mail and, and received by individuals, and some of those individuals may need alternative formats to print, whether it's in large print version, for example, or maybe even electronic documents to, again, use at home on the computer and have it read aloud to them via screen reader software. So it's all about how information is shown and conveyed and ensuring that there are, there are uh, alternative methods and formats to uh, be made available to individuals who request that. Next slide. All right, thanks, Michael. Um, so next question, what types of providers have the most ADA compliance challenges and how have they overcome them to become compliant with the ADA? And I think here, Michael and Pam, if you're able to provide some examples by provider type, and some uh, the specific challenge that provider type faces and how each has been successful in becoming compliant with the ADA. Great question, Jennifer. Uh, this is Michael, I'll, I'll start, and Pam, if you wanna add something, you certainly can. Um, for this question, this may be subjective since it depends on the size and setup of the organization, the way policies and procedures have been developed, and the quality and consistency of staff training. Small doctor's offices and clinics often are subjects of court cases because there's generally a lack of knowledge about responsibilities under the ADA. So often it takes a complaint and a settlement agreement to implement required changes, which ideally we don't want that to have happen. <laughs> Larger clinics and hospitals may often have issues too, depending on the issues mentioned above. 
or just previously. And some common denominators of proactive and accessible providers may include, uh, but are not limited to, um, having a designated ADA or access coordinator on staff to oversee patient access. Uh, or incorporating accessible diagnostic equipment, exam tables and chairs and weighing scales, uh, ensuring the development of good policies and procedures to ensure a seamless process when a customer or patient calls for an appointment, requests an accommodation, and comes in for services and treatment. So again, going back to that concept of ensuring that the uh, patient chart, customer chart file has information about their previous accommodation requests and needs, so there's a seamless sort of a continuation of providing accessible treatment. And then, of course, uh, establishing and providing consistent staff training on disability access issues as well as, um, you know, disability interaction and etiquette and how to feel comfortable when interacting with individuals with disabilities. Great. Thanks, Michael. Pam, anything to add on your end? Actually, I want to go ahead and go into the slide you just went into because it really does uh, supplement this particular question quite nicely. And talking about some of the best practices that provider organizations have taken to assess their accessibility, identify the gaps and prioritize the access needs. One of the first things that we think is very important, and this is for organizations of any size, whether they're, they're smaller clinics in rural areas to your large um, providers in, in big cities, is to conduct the facility accessibility review. And there's a checklist, and we can provide this information as a follow-up for you, and I believe it's also in the resources. And it's the ADA checklist for existing facilities. It's, and we often encourage um, folks to work with disability groups in order to look at your accessibility because if you don't live it, breathe it, and sleep it every day, you are not going to understand the importance of um, making things accessible or why something might be inaccessible. For example, uh, one of my, one of the things that just always makes me roll my eyes, but at the same time, I get it, is you walk into a, a medical office, they have this beautiful accessible bathroom, but this nice, beautiful piece of furniture has been put in between the sink and the commode, and, and, and the person using a wheelchair can no longer access the commode because they can't back into the space. So you, so you automatically you've taken away all access to various, to the to the bathroom and you know folks don't understand that so this these are the good things to look at and not only do a one-time facility access uh, accessibility review go ahead and conduct a self-evaluation in all areas look at departments programs uh, effective communication web accessibility administrative requirements everything and go through and make sure your policies and procedures are in place. If they're not in place, go ahead and put them in place and set up a plan and then set up an annual review of these um, items to make sure you're making progress in these areas. It's all, there is a self-evaluation form um, with the ADA Title II Action Guide for state and local governments. And although it is focused on state and local governments, I still consider it a good best practice for uh, private entities because it helps you to be able to think through things clearly and to look at um, 
uh, other pieces. The other thing that I think is really important, and we've mentioned this a couple of times already, is the incorporation of disability and ADA training into regular staff training. There are excellent materials out there, and we as the ADA National Network uh, can guide you to those. We have a webinar series on healthcare and the ADA and inclusion of people with disabilities. And then we also have a video called At Your Service. These are the kinds of things that we encourage, especially um, as a, for your long-term uh, employees, it's a good refresher. For your new employees, you always want to make sure they're up to speed. And it just helps folks to stay, stay in the know and to know what they can do in order to be able to address the needs of customers and provide excellent customer services to all customers, including those with disabilities. Great, thank you very much, Pam. Um, I think we have time maybe for one more question um, before we have to wrap up. And we did get a, a question in. Uh, you're not gonna see the question on your screen, so I will, I will read it out. Um, the question is, our case managers always struggle finding accessible mammography and other radiological services for their members. What are your suggestions for increasing accessible access for these services? This is Michael. I'm just quickly reading the question on the captions here. That's a very good question. I think um, uh, as far as uh, finding accessible diagnostic equipment, um, you know, I, I guess, you know, just thinking in, in common sense terms, I, reaching out to other uh, healthcare providers within the network to see if somebody has already incorporated accessible diagnostic equipment, exam tables and chairs, into their system and, uh, if necessary, making appropriate referrals to those facilities is one thing I can think of. Pam, do you have other ideas? Actually, I do. The other thing that I would encourage is to provide information to, to the medical providers about what they could do in order to procure these types of uh, equipment. The U.S. Access Board has actually put out some excellent guidance on what it means to have accessible medical equipment. And although it's not um, incorporated into regulations yet, it's still, again, it's a good practice. And sometimes it's just a matter of educating the medical providers about the need and then providing them with the uh, information they need in order to be able to incorporate that into their regular practice. Thank you for listening. This podcast is presented by the Lewin Group and is supported through the Medicare and Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MNCO is dedicated to helping beneficiaries enroll in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality healthcare that includes the full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated, coordinated care, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations and care models. To learn more about our current efforts and resources, please visit our website or follow us on Twitter for more details. Our Twitter handle is at integrate underscore care.